Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu. You're listening to Greater LA from KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hey there, I'm Steve Chitakis. Ten-year-old Hugo Beatty is stomping up a hiking trail in Simi Valley when suddenly... Larva, larva, larva. He and his friend, five-year-old Oliver Davis, stumble upon a mound of dirt covered in bugs. And they start to investigate. Are they wasps? They're no, not definitely wasps. not wasps. There might be worker ants. For Hugo and Oliver, finding bugs on a trail is just the beginning of a regular school day. Both boys are homeschooled, and twice a week they come to learn in this outdoor enrichment program. Homeschooling is booming. In the L.A. Unified School District, nearly twice as many kids today are homeschooled as before the pandemic. That's up 90% in five years. So who are these new homeschool families? And why'd they stick with it as the pandemic has gotten better? KCRW's Robin Estrin has the story. The kids here today are part of Children's Forest School, run by homeschool mom Madeline Sarkeesian. The learning that takes place is very organic and very child-driven, and so their, their learning happens within the environment and not so much teacher-directed learning or like a curriculum that we have to follow. After their morning meeting, the kids descend into play. Oliver scales a concrete embankment. When he returns, Hugo uses a $160 set of Japanese watercolors to paint Oliver's face and arms. Watercolors can now become skin paint and you're transforming kids into ninjas. Whereas in a classroom, I think with restrictions with budget and the amount of students in a classroom, that the materials that are bought for the classroom need to be used for that purpose and that purpose only. Up until the pandemic, Sarkeesian was a preschool teacher in a traditional classroom. I really saw that path for me, and I was very passionate about it. She didn't know any homeschool families, and she admits she made assumptions. Oh, it must be the extremists, the people who are really religious and only want to stay home uh, with their kids and control, you know, their environment to the minute level. So I had a lot of biases about, you know, what I assumed homeschooling was. I'm like, why wouldn't you have your child in a classroom? Why wouldn't you have them socializing with peers? But once classrooms moved to Zoom, she quickly realized virtual learning wouldn't work for her as a teacher or for her son as a kindergartner in a private school. And so as a family, we had to make a decision. Do we want to continue to pay tuition, first of all, to continue to do remote learning, which is not working for him? Or do we homeschool? A lot of families started asking this question around that time. And together, they've begun to change the face of the homeschooling movement. Before the pandemic... You know, a simple majority was uh, homeschooling predominantly for faith reasons or ideological reasons. James Dwyer is co-author of a book on homeschooling and a professor at William and Mary Law School. He says that when the pandemic started, millions of families started homeschooling. A lot of people across the political spectrum and faith spectrum who maybe never considered it or were afraid to try saw it as kind of a fringe thing to do. Then all of a sudden everybody was doing it, so they got the experience. They were doing what everybody else was doing. It was normalized. 
Over the last five years, homeschool enrollment in California has jumped by 80 percent, according to school district data analyzed by The Washington Post. Up to three million students are homeschooled today nationally. I was doing homeschool 101s every week, and we were seeing 100 people each time. Jamie Heston shepherded many of those families through the transition from traditional schools as a volunteer with the Homeschool Association of California, a secular nonprofit organization. She says a lot of families were pushed into the decision by virtual learning. When parents got a front row seat to their child's education, not all of them liked what they saw. Heston heard from families who said... I'm upset because of the level, the quality, the level of teaching that's happening. I don't think it's deep enough or it's sort of rote learning or it could be what's being taught. That was the case for Covina parent Monique White, who took issue with the online education offered to her then five-year-old. I think it was like a half an hour of the class actually meeting maybe twice a week. And then there was work uploaded every day. It scrambled my brain to see how little work actually came in. So my mind immediately went to, what is he doing there all day? The second problem, White's son is on the autism spectrum, and the special education services he was getting all but disappeared when school shut down. It was a joke. You know, come to find out later, like during the pandemic, they just, there was nothing. And then it turned into, well, we'll do 10 minutes of individual sessions per week. And I'm like, how are you going to have see a transitional kindergartner for 10 minutes? I mean, it takes them 10 minutes to log on and log off. Homeschool enrollment didn't just spike because parents were unhappy. Heston with the Homeschool Association says some saw a real upside to teaching their kids at home during the pandemic. Families started figuring out like, wow, when we just learn on our own and we're going down to the creek and we're, you know, going to the tide pools, you know, and we're learning stuff and we go into the museums and we're just looking at these cool videos online on YouTube. And that's really interesting. And my kids are super into that. And that's all. And they see their kids like interest gets sparked and their learning gets sparked. So that was also a driver, right? Like, wow, when we're not just sitting for six hours in front of a camera, you know, on the on the computer, we can actually do some really substantive learning. That was the case for Naomi Bjornstead in San Dimas, who had two kids in public school. Bjornstead works full-time as a physician's assistant, mostly at night. She teaches her kids the basics like math and reading during the day, and they take private classes in art and science. The family has traveled to a dozen states for learning experiences, and socially, she says her kids are fine. They play sports. Her daughter is in Girl Scouts. Now, Bjornstead says her daughter wants to go to a private school for high school, but she's doing so well well academically that Bjornstead's nervous to send her. My kids now are almost advanced after, you know, a year of being like intensively homeschooled. I'm like, I I didn't want to put them in a situation where they were going to be bored or where they weren't going to continue advancing in the same way that they were. Homeschooling is now the fastest growing model of schooling in the country, but the boom hasn't resulted in any additional oversight of what or how much kids are learning. In California, a parent just needs to file an affidavit with the state each year, establishing their home as a private school. Record keeping is minimal and nothing has to be reported.
Dwyer suggests background checks for parents and semi-annual meetings with a school official. To just have a conversation with the child, to make sure, you know, to get some sense of, of how they're doing physically and mentally, uh, and then presentation of some kind of academic results. There are currently no bills in the state legislature to regulate homeschooling. And Dwyer says there's very little political appetite. For KCRW, I'm Robin Estrin. Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Earn your graduate degree in a flexible online format from University of Southern California and learn from faculty at the top of their fields in areas such as business, health, law, engineering, psychology, communications, and more. Explore your options today at online.usc.edu. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Greater L.A. from KCRW, and now to some changes happening in public schools. Understanding media has never really been a priority in primary education, but never has there been a time of so much media. News media, social media, websites, applications, artificial intelligence, real stories, and sadly, fake ones all over the place. So starting next year, California will begin requiring a new subject in school called media literacy, an increasingly important skill in the 21st century information landscape. And Ebony O2 is the senior vice president of educator engagement at the nonprofit News Literacy Project. And she's here to talk more about what this might look like for students and teachers. Um, And she's in the Bay Area, I might add. Ebony, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Now, yours is a national organization, so give us a bit of context here. I mean, what what is California talking about when it comes to this kind of curriculum? Yeah, we're excited to see the movement of more states starting to adopt these types of requirements and mandates. So in California specifically, what we're seeing is that the state is taking very seriously media literacy and students being able to discern fact from fiction and being able to navigate this very complicated information landscape. So we know that eventually standards will include media literacy so that every student that graduates will have to take a unit of instruction in media literacy. Where are younger people getting? I feel like I'm 113 years old when I ask this question, but (laughs) where do the young people get their news these days? I mean, it's not from the network news like, you know, it used to be done decades ago. It's like everywhere, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Everywhere. There are countless studies that talk about how more and more um, people in general, not just students, but are getting their news online um, from social media. And that includes all social media platforms, uh, TikTok, Facebook, um, you name it. Uh, We're seeing how young people are getting news and are starting to um, more and more believe the voices that they see um, on their screens and that they hear in their videos when they're scrolling on their phones. When when it comes to curriculum, Ebony, I mean, media literacy lessons are set to be included here in California anyway, across um, English, social studies, and even in the math and sciences. What, That's right. what do you think some of those, I mean, what, what's that going to look like? 
we're not expecting that media literacy right now be its own separate class, but rather that it's embedded into other disciplines, uh, which is really important because we know that if it's embedded into other disciplines, one, it's cross-disciplinary. So you can see how media literacy uh, will be important in the English courses and, of course, civics courses, history courses, but also math courses and art, um, the sciences. We saw in 2020 um, at the start of the pandemic how there was so much science mis and disinformation and health mis and disinformation and that really i think awoken people to this idea that we really need media literacy incorporated into other disciplines not just relegated to civics and history and english but in algorithms and math courses and data and science and um, all of these other disciplines in art and so no matter what trajectory students are on, when they graduate from high school, they will have taken at least one unit of instruction of media literacy in some class that they're taking. This is like a question for the ages, but, you know, why do you think there's so much mis and disinformation out there? How does it make it out there? <laughs> that <laughs> That is a huge question. I mean, it's um, an editing problem for sure, but it's just, you know, it's a parody problem. It's a mm -hmm. money problem. I mean, there's so many ways by which false fake news can get spread. It's true. It's true. Um, and the actual problem that we're trying to solve is that facts and the truth are essential to a well-functioning democracy and so should guide every important decision that we make. That's why this work is so important. That's why media literacy and news literacy is so important uh, because right now our shared civic life is in jeopardy because we are drowning in disinformation. And I think that's a part of the information landscape being so complex. So right now students are living in literally the most complicated information landscape in human history. And so that means that they are ill-equipped if we don't teach them to navigate that landscape. And that's why mis and disinformation, one of the reasons why mis and disinformation can grow so rapidly, so um, rampantly and be believable to folks. So it's really our responsibility to make sure that we're teaching these skills um, to young people so they can participate in civic life. Um, Americans may differ on policy proposals, but we have to come to an agreement about basic facts to be able to solve our country's most pressing issues. And young people will be the people who have to solve these issues in the future. And that's, but, again, but we're why not doing that, right? We're not, we're, we're, we're not, not doing that right now. We're not doing that right now. I mean, we can't even agree on what, what is fact. And, and it, that, that seems to be the problem. So, I mean, what do you say if somebody comes to you and says, well, California, you know, the state is going to have its hand on how now young people, these moldable, impressionable young people are going to be able to decipher what is fact from fiction, and California is going to decide what's fact, right, in, in, in helping students decipher that kind of information. So, I mean, there's going to be pushback, right? I'm, I'm sure there's going to be pushback. We've already seen some pushback in some other states where this type of legislation has passed. But what's really key here um, and what we really emphasize at the News Literacy Project is that we're teaching students not what to think, but how to think about news and other information they consume. So California and other states um, and in our curriculum specifically, we're not 
suggesting that students adopt an idea or beliefs that the state holds or that NLP holds or anyone else holds for that matter. Instead, what we're doing is giving students the sensibilities to be able to make that decision for themselves. I mean, and, and, and it, the knife cuts both ways, by the way, not to, like California can be accused of having a hand right. in education and how students think. But in Florida, you know, you look at <laughs> what the curriculum there is about, you know, uh, uh, slaves who, what was it, ha, you know, uh, adopted some great labor techniques or whatever mm-hmm. it was as a part of American history. Right. I mean, it goes both ways. It does. It does. And there's missing disinformation on both sides of the aisle, <laughs> um, no matter how you slice it. And that's why NLP focuses on nonpartisanship so heavily, because we want folks to know that news literacy should not be a partisan issue. And really, news literacy is a subset of media literacy. So we're hoping that as more states adopt media literacy standards, that news literacy becomes a core part of those standards so that students can read these types of things for themselves and develop their own understanding about whether or not this is true based on um, how they're sourcing, based on other things that they're looking at, based on lateral reading and other techniques that we teach to show them that you can come to these to understandings and conclusions by yourself. You can develop the tools to do it on your own. And by the way, it starts at home, like everything, right? Mm. Mom and dad or mom and mom or whomever, right, can help the students, uh, you know, help their kid say, look, this is how we decipher what is false and what is fact. And and there's a basis for what is factual information. And you can do your own research about it as well. And that's the key, doing your own research, right? That's the key. Mm -hmm. That's the key. Well, so many keys, obviously, and, and too many locks. <laughs> Ebony O2, Senior Vice President of Educator Engagement over at the News Literacy Project in the Bay Area. Ebony, thanks so much for being a part of our day. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Onward now with Greater L.A. from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiatakis. If you're taking a trip down to San Diego, there's a hidden gem along the way. The Museum of Contemporary Art in La Jolla, or MCASD. It boasts stunning panoramic views of the Pacific. It was just renovated last year. And if you go now, you'll be able to view an exhibition of work by L.A.-based artist Kelly Akashi. The show explores her family's internment during World War II, through her wax and glass works and features bronze casts of her own hands. Our art insider, Lindsay Preston Zappas, is the editor-in-chief of Contemporary Art Review LA, and she's here to tell us more about Akashi's exhibition down in La Jolla. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, Steve. So tell us about the show. It's, it's glass and wax, right? That's what we're talking about. Largely, but Akashi definitely works across a variety of mediums. And the show, to me, really felt like a mini retrospective. There's a large selection of recent work, but also some pieces made from over the last decade. And it really seemed to kind of track her growth and transition with some of these materials like wax and glass, which 
which she's become more dedicated to in recent years, actually. Um, there's a lot of cast bronze objects, uh, cast bronze hands, blown glass pieces, also photography, and even a sculpture of her body that's carved in stone. And a lot of times her pieces will sort of mix these materials together in really evocative ways. So one example of that is a bronze cast of her hand that has this really beautiful, delicate glass flower that kind of twists around her fingers. So the work is kind of blending these methods and materials and feels very self-reflexive and sort of plays with these interactions of human and nature. And, and it connects, right? It connects, as I mentioned, back to her family during the Second World War. Yeah, exactly. So this is sort of a newer direction for her. Uh, some of the newest work in the show, Akashi, who's Japanese-American, was thinking about her family's history at the Poston internment camp in Arizona. And it's a history that her family didn't really talk to her much about. And so this new work really allowed her to kind of have an avenue to explore it for herself and kind of learn through making so she actually began visiting the site in 2021 and taking objects like weeds and tree branches, kind of innocuous objects and rocks. Uh, and some of the sculptures in the show actually mix objects from the site with family heirlooms and then casts of Akashi's hands. So one example of that is a glass cast of her hand that's wearing a ring that was her grandmother's. And then the hand is kind of resting on a rock that she took from Paulston. So it sort of mixes all these things. And, and she talks about how she's trying to materialize her family history. Well, let, let's talk about the hands, right? They're on display throughout her art, right? And I mean, what point is she is she trying to make with that? Yeah, I mean, her work ranges, like I said, through all these materials, but I think these hands are almost like the constant in the work. Um, she's been casting her own hands for a long time. Often they're cast in bronze, sometimes glass, as I mentioned. And sometimes she even uses these bronze hands to sort of manipulate the glass sculptures she makes while the glass is sort of in a malleable state, which is really interesting. And I think for Akashi, she she like uses these hands as a way to talk about her own body, but also passing of time and aging. Uh, these hands are a practice that I've been told she's going to actually continue across her life and kind of continue across her career as an artist. And one interesting thing is that she lets her nails kind of grow and crack really freely. Uh, so a lot of times her nails in these casts are different lengths and kind of jagged. And so these nails almost like tell a story or it's they almost become these keys to a specific moment in her life. Again, it's over at MCASD in La Jolla. Um, let's talk about the location for a minute. What's yeah. the history behind that place? And I mean, apparently it's been renovated. Now it's much bigger, right? Exactly. Really interesting history. Uh, it was built in 1914, actually as a residence for Ellen Browning Scripps. Uh, but then it became a community art center in the 1940s and since then has gone through different iterations, different names as a museum, um, several renovations. But this newest one began in 2017 and was completed in 2022. Uh, so the museum is much more modernized. And honestly, I was blown away by the amount of exhibition space. It's really vastly increased. And it's not just the Akashi exhibit, right? There are other things on display at this much larger museum now, right? 
Yeah, so because of this new expansion, there's so much room to host collection exhibitions. And the current collection show really highlights the museum's collecting practices over the years. So there are rooms that are dedicated to abstraction, pop art, minimalism, uh, borders, and Latinx artists, which the museum has focused on, and also a range of newly acquired pieces. So it's a huge range, lots of room, pretty exciting. And all of that in addition to L.A.-based artist Kelly Akashi over at MCASD in La Jolla through February 18th. Lindsay Preston Zapp is founder and editor-in-chief of Contemporary Art Review L.A. Lindsay, as always, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Well, that's all the time we have for this evening. Hope you'll join us for tomorrow. What homeless service providers want you to know about how to be helpful this time of year. And being helpful after the holidays are long gone, too. What can you do going forward? That's tomorrow on Greater L.A. We'll be joined by KCRW's housing and homeless reporter, Anna Scott, for that story. Join us online anytime, by the way, kcrw.com slash GLA. And while you're there, tell us how you're doing. Share a story idea with us. Do you have something to say? Maybe get the podcast so you can get the show on the go anytime. We would love to be in the lineup. kcrw.com slash GLA or get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts by searching KCRW Greater LA. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geist, Nick Lamponi, Sue Margulies, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordal all helped run the episode this evening. I'm Steve Chitakis. Thanks for the ear. Bye-bye. Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu.